Let's turn this evening in God's Word to the book of Acts, the sixth chapter. The book of Acts, chapter 6. For those of you who are visiting with us tonight, uh, we are involved in two different series. Uh, one, uh, an expository uh, series on the Gospel of Mark. This morning we were in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. This evening, uh, another series we have generally throughout the summer uh, is uh, looking at various characters of the Bible alphabetically. Uh, this year we are on the letter N. And so uh, tonight's message is going to be about a man named Nicholas. Acts chapter 6. Let us hear God's breathed out word to us in verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochius, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you'll guide Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word. <laughs> speaks about this man. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. God has indeed included in his word this beautiful lesson for us as God's people. A lesson that by the time I get to the end of this message... Um, uh, to the last point that we deal with, we have seen on display within our own community in the last couple of weeks. And it is indeed the work of mercy that God has entrusted to the church. And in that work of mercy, there is a powerful witness to the church itself and to the community that surrounds us. That's why I chose to, to preach on this particular man in this evening hour. First of all, he is a man, this man by the name of Nicholas, who was distinguished. Secondly, he is a man who was a deacon. And thirdly, he is a man who made a difference. He is distinguished, he is a deacon, and he made a difference. First of all, one of the interesting things is always to examine the names of, of people uh, his name, Nicholas, means conqueror of the people. 
It's taken from the Greek god Nike, meaning victory, and then uh, the Greek word for of the people or over the people as well. Uh, there is some understanding that perhaps this name had some uh, ancient use to it amongst the Greeks, that it was a, a name that became familiar with those who would perhaps lead um, and conquer over a particular place or uh, person. It's kind of interesting that we have a czar, several of them by the name of Nicholas as well, that perhaps came from that same understanding. But it's interesting that in his name that parents had no idea what it was about, that uh, his parents certainly weren't thinking, oh, someday our son is going to grow up and be a deacon in the church and yada, yada. But yet his name does indeed speak to the, to the concern, to the problem, and to the blessing that this man and the other six became. So that, first of all, his name. But we are also told that he is from Antioch. That, that information is also given to us. He, so we have his name, Nicholas, and that he is of Antioch. It is one of the most frequently mentioned names uh, of cities in the book of Acts because Antioch's, the church at Antioch becomes the sending church of the missionary arm to the Gentiles. And so Paul and Silas and so on are often coming back to give their home reports at Antioch because that is the sending church. That is the church that seemed to have an eye, as it were, to the world. This is where this Nicholas is from. It is the third largest city of all of the provinces. Now, it's not the third largest city in the empire because we're not including Rome itself and that province, but in all the other provinces that Rome has conquered, as you think about that empire surrounding all of the Mediterranean Sea, it is the third largest of all of the cities. So it's rather significant. Some uh, have said that it was about a mile square and it was filled with beautiful gates that lined all four. Some actually commentators actually think that the, the city four square that is talked about uh, might have more to do with the description of Antioch than it did of the physical city of Jerusalem. In other words, that's more the picture of the church as it should be than it is the church from the Old Testament as we see it in Jerusalem. Uh, several kings had been very actively involved because of the sides of this. They wanted to win the hearts of the people. There were various construction projects that were done um, that uh, stood as marvels of that particular day. So that, that's just a little bit background to it. His status, however, is something we have to take note of because Scripture notes it. Scripture tells us that this man, by the name of Nicholas, was a proselyte of Antioch. Now, if I pose that as a question, if I just said, what does that mean? Okay, we, we might have a lot of failures at this particular point. We, we might not know exactly what that means. We might be thinking it means he's a, a convert to Christianity. 
Well, he is, but that's not what the term proselyte references. Nicholas was raised a pagan. Okay? He, he is a follower of the pagan gods. But he, has, he came to a point in his life when he left paganism and converted to Judaism. He left the polytheistic views of Greek and Roman mythology with all of their various false gods and has converted to following one God, Yahweh. And as a sign of that, he was circumcised. So he, is, he had become fully involved in Judaism. What we note uh, in history about these proselytes, of those who converted now from paganism over to Judaism, is that these folks were zealous for Jerusalem. These, these folks were zealous for the temple, for the sacrifices, for the priesthood. Now, it's sort of like here in the United States, there are certain things, or, or maybe, let, let me even give this illustration. When, when you're from Michigan, okay, and you go to Lake Michigan, you say, yep, big lake, sand, water, right? And we kind of get used to it. it. It's just sort of like, yep, there's the big lake, all the sand. You get somebody who comes here, for example, for the Tulip Festival, and they come here from Japan, and you take them to the, the big lake, and they stand there, and they just, they, they're, they're amazed at that which they see. That that's not the ocean out there. That, that's a lake. And all the sand, and the beauty of it, and the fact it doesn't have tides. They, it, it's just an, an amazing thing. And they, and they, you know, they're snapping pictures all over the place. We long since put away those photo albums, and we don't pay much attention to that anymore. Just like if you live in a state with mountains, you know, yeah, we have mountains. And you get used to it. Well, if you live in Jerusalem, you sort of got used to the temple. You got used to the priesthood. That, yeah, you got used to all the visitors coming for the feast. But when you're one of these converts, ah, oh, the passion for these things. And some of you probably know where I'm going with this as well. Oftentimes, this is often true of the church as well. And when we grow up within the church, some things that are part of the church, that are part of the nature of the church, that are part of the culture of the church, that are part of the worship of the church, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, we did that again. Okay? No. Oh, yeah. yeah, we read the Ten Commandments again. Yeah, we, we do that a lot. Whereas those who are converts, those who come out of paganism, those who come out of uh, blind unbelief and at a latter time in life are converted to Christ, are like, yes, read it again, read it again. Yes, can we sing it again? Can we sing it again? Yes, I want to hear that again. Love that which is part of the church. Nicholas is a proselyte. He is somebody who has converted from paganism to Judaism, but now 
has converted to Christianity. This man has taken a journey from the false gods to the one true God to the one true way, Jesus Christ. This is his journey. That's what Acts is telling us. That's why that line is so important. The journey this man has taken. But there is something else to be noted. Nicholas is the first named. He's not the first one. But he is the first named full member of the church that is not of Jewish blood. Stop and think about that a minute. That, that's, that's kind of an amazing thing to, to just think and reflect upon. His name is the first one mentioned who is a full member of the church who doesn't have an ounce of Jewish blood in him. It is significant then that he is going to be one who is chosen. It shows you the amazing way in which God's Spirit is working in this instance that we're dealing with in Acts chapter 6. That the horizon is ever-expanding and opening before the church of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a one race only. It wasn't a one dialect only. It was seeing fully that which God intended when he speaks even in the Old Testament that the gospel is going to be a light to the Gentiles through his son Jesus Christ. He is also distinguished not only because of his name and the city, not only because of his status, but he's also distinguished by his gifts. Now, we know that because he is one who is chosen. His name comes and appears in the list of seven who are chosen. Those who are chosen are, were chosen because, verse 3, brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute. He is a man who has a good reputation. He is a man who is known to be fair. He is known to be honest. He is known to be a decent man. He is known to be a God-fearing man. He is a man of good repute. But, look at the passage. Who is full of the Spirit. Hey, what, a, what an amazing thing to say, isn't it? We want you to choose men who are full of the Spirit. Not men who have the Spirit, not men who have the gift of the Spirit, but men who are full of the Spirit. And when this congregation of Acts chapter 6 looks around, they choose these seven men, one of whom is this man Nicholas, and they look at him and they say, this is a man who is a man of good repute, this is a man who is full of the Spirit. We today might say, well, I'm not sure anybody could be full of the Spirit, could they? Yes, he was. The Word of God tells us that. Along with these other men, full 
of the Spirit. Not full of themselves. Full of the Spirit. But not only that, look at the verse again. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. They not only have the knowledge, they not only have the reputation, they not only have the Spirit, but they have an understanding. They know how to apply that which they have been given. Wisdom here doesn't mean smarts in the sense of GPA, SAT scores, and so on. Wisdom here does not refer to knowledge in the sense of how much one knows. Wisdom here refers to how one applies that which one knows. I would say those are pretty distinguishing characteristics for someone to have in this world. A good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Such is the case Nicholas, a man who came out of paganism. A, a man who had converted once to Judaism and now to Christ. People look at him. People examine him. People see in him a man of those gifts. And so he along with the others, are chosen. So that's our second point. What else do we know about this man, Nicholas, according to God's word? Not only that he is distinguished, but also that he is a deacon. Now, in order for us to, to understand what's going on here, why, why we're dealing with deacons, we have to understand the problem that was occurring. So we go back to verse 1. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, see, things have taken off. Church growth is a good thing. 3,000 converted at Pentecost by the work of the Holy Spirit. We started with probably about 120, at least that's the number that keeps coming back to us after the resurrection. Now we have a group of 3,120. Now just imagine that. Think, think of that. If in one day, in one day, Little Farms Church grew at the same proportion they did. So if this were Pentecost Sunday, right, it means we would go from roughly our 300 to, what, 30 times that? To 9,000. So by the time we meet next Lord's Day, there's 9,000 of us trying to get in this room. You know, imagine that? Just, just, just think of the logistics of that situation. Not only where are we going to sit, where are we going to park? But it all occurred. See, that's what the church had to deal with. And then, on top of that, more are added, so we have a number now over 5,000 in a short period of time. And we have 12 men 
trying to manage the preaching, the teaching, the fellowship, and the distribution of food. They said, well, why are we distributing food? I don't, I don't quite get the scenario. Well, remember what happens at Pentecost. Who are those who come to faith? They are those primarily who have journeyed to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. We hear people in our own language, and then we have a list from all over the Roman Empire. What do you suppose those people did upon their conversion? They stayed. They can't go back home and hear the Word of God. There is no Word of God back home. They need training. They need discipling. They're meeting daily, the disciples are. The apostles are, we could say. Meeting daily. Teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Because eventually these people are going to have to go back to their homes. Go back to their countries. And they need to go back trained in the things of God. Trained in the knowledge of Christ. Trained in the understanding of true salvation. Not by works, but by grace. So we have all these people that now fall under the care of the apostles. Collections are taken. And with that collection money, these people, who long ago ran out of money for their journey and trip to Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, but now that they're Christians, they've become the responsibility of the church. Not of the Jewish people any longer, and not of the Jewish religion. They're now the responsibility of the church. And so the disciples, while they're trying to teach and preach and train also have to run, as it were, the food kitchen, the benevolence aspect of this work. And what ended up happening, because the verse tells us, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against their Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now what does that mean? Hellenist refers to those who are Greek-speaking Jews. So there were those at Pentecost who were Greek-speaking. That's their normal language. They don't speak Hebrew. That's not their mother tongue. Their mother tongue is Greek because they're from all these other countries. But they're Jewish by religion. They came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, were converted by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, are now Christian. They are referred to as Hellenists, okay, meaning under the Greek culture. They read from the Septuagint, not the Old Testament Hebrew. Many of those, from the reading, it would appear, who were converted were widows. They had no means of being taken care of. But there was another segment of widows. They were the Hebrew widows. What does that mean? It means they spoke Hebrew. They were Jewish, who had converted to Christianity, but who spoke Hebrew. 
read from the Hebrew Scriptures. So we have this tension of language, of culture, of what Scripture version are you reading from. Somehow or another, those who were the Hebrew widows, maybe we would say it this way, always got in line first, always got a daily distribution to take care of the daily bread, their food, for the day. These Hellenists, Greek-speaking widows, somehow or another were at the back of the line, were neglected, were not given that. And so this starts to roil. There goes a complaint. What are you going to do about our situation? This isn't fair. This isn't right. We're being overlooked. We're all Christians. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Why are we being neglected while they continually being administered to? Included in the problem is this. All 12 of the apostles are of that Hebrew background. So it appears, it appears that the church leaders are saying, if you're a Hebrew, you're a notch better than the Greek speakers. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, you're right. There is a problem. We can't manage it all. We can't do everything. We can't preach. We can't teach. We can't be praying with these people. We can't be discipling these people. And at the same time, making sure that the problem that has occurred or the problem that is occurring doesn't happen anymore. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We don't have the manpower to deal with this. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that the word of God, that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. A problem occurs. Church growth. God brought the growth by His Holy Spirit. In that growth, problems occur. Difficulties arise. Arguments back and forth in this early church. Are we supposed to take time away from the preaching of the word in order to do this work? That would not be wise. Their solution then is to pick seven men. A biblical number. I think that's all they're doing. Is it's, it's not like, they, you know, how many do we need? How many districts? How many people per person? They're just picking a biblical number. A number of fulfillment. A number of completion. A symbolic number that speaks to all of these people. 
that we will do the work and we will do it well and we will do it completely and we will do it fully. So it's this care of the needy, particularly the care of the needy, primarily the care of the needy. Not only, but this is the primary purpose, the primary function that a deacon is to serve in the church, to make sure that the cares and concerns and needs of the people of the congregation are met. This is where God leads the church in its development, in its expansion. How do we deal with the church growth program, problem that we have, that we've come across? We appoint other men to serve as deacons to be that ministering arm of the church. It is not to say, and the apostles here are not saying, that is a lesser call. But the apostles understand that Christ has told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is the command that Christ gave to them. And they do not want to desert the command that Christ had given to them. This isn't a, oh, this isn't unimportant. If it were unimportant, they would have just let it go and said, ah, it'll all blow over. No, they realize the importance of it. They realize the necessity of it. They realize that this is crucial for the life and ministry of the church. That if there is not the loving arms and feet and hands of the church, we're just a bunch of air. It is the deacons that put the feet and hands to the gospel and love of Christ in this world. So important was this work and function. Notice, they didn't just say, I go choose them and let them get to work. No, the apostles stop and say, no, something else needs to be done. What did they do? Verse 5. They picked the men, pleased the gathering. This made sense. You know what's interesting about the list of the seven? They're all Hellenists. We're given that information by their names. Their names tell us every single one of them was a Hellenist. In other words, their decision was, we take the side of the complainers. In the sense that we will appoint men who will specifically make sure that they are not overlooked. Verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. You see, they ordained them. They, they set them apart by prayer. They set them apart by their authority. They are being set apart by Christ. That's why when we have ordinations, we don't just ordain elders. We just don't ordain teaching elders. We just don't ordain ruling elders. We ordain deacons because we understand that they too need to be set apart 
for this call, this task of the gospel, this ministry that is so needed. Now I want you to note the difference this makes. Verse 7. And the word of God continued in, to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They made a difference. Nicholas, being one of the seven, along with the others, make a difference. There was a complaint. Is there a complaint afterwards? No complaint. They made a difference. They made a difference in dealing with and solving the problem and the issue and the complaint that had been brought forward. Rather than to let the complaint go on and injure the cause of the gospel, they deal with the complaint, they deal with the problem, and these men are the solution to the problem. They are the solution to the issue. The word of God increased. In other words, there's no falling out. That's what we're being told. You get the sense when you read verse 1, there might have been a falling out. We see the potential of a split here. We see the potential of people leaving. We see the potential of people being so harmed, being so injured by the neglect that had occurred, they're walking away from it. Instead, what we have is these men being appointed, these men being ordained, these men doing their work, and what happens? The Word of God continued to increase. Rather than tearing things apart, they brought things together so that God's Word could be honored and glorified. But notice that it's not only there, it's also in the world. Their work in the church, ministering in the church, makes a difference in the world. That's mission work going on. Listen to what it says. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So not only did the church grow, the word of God increased, so did the number of disciples. Well, who are those disciples? Were there not those who were there at the beginning of chapter 6? These are new disciples. Why are new disciples being added? Why are new disciples coming? Well, of course we know theologically it's the work of the Holy Spirit. His work of faith, God's grace that is given. But it is through this ministering arm. That's why that verse is tied into verses 1 through 6. They made a difference. People took notice of what the church did, how the church solved its problem, how the church handled this conflict and complaint. And the world took note. Look at the wisdom. Look at the love. Look at the service. So that it's even noted and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now think of what the priests, they're in Judaism. They're invested in Judaism. Their life is in Judaism. Their work is in Judaism. Their paycheck is in Judaism. 
Their status is in Judaism. Who they are is they are priests. But what happened? The priest saw what was going on in the church. They saw how the poor, how the widows were being cared for by the church. And God used that as a means of striking their heart. Why? Well, you know why, don't you? Think of all the times that we read in the Gospels of how the widows were being treated by the Jewish society. They were neglected. The priests knew what should have been done. The priests knew how Judaism was supposed to respond to the needs and concerns of the poor, of the downtrodden, how the church was supposed to respond to the widow. But they weren't seeing it. They were seeing Caiaphas with his big house. They were seeing expensive robes. They were seeing cooperation with Rome. But now here's the church ministering in the world to those of need. And it draws them to repentance. We have sinned. We have neglected the duty. We have neglected the responsibility that we had from Almighty God. And we will leave this Judaism. We will leave this way. And we will become obedient to the faith. What does that mean? They become believers in Jesus Christ. What did that mean? It meant they left their priesthood. It meant they had to get back to work. It meant they didn't get the paycheck every month. They had to find new jobs. They had to find new livelihoods. Remember where we were this morning when the disciples asked, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Well, here are men who left everything. They left everything to follow Christ. Why? Because they saw the way that the church responded to the needs and concerns of those within the body of Christ. He is a man who made a difference in the church, in the world. But let us take note of the fact that it is through the Spirit. This is not a man on his own. This is not just Nicholas with his individual natural talents and abilities. No, these are men who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. The work of deacons is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he's not alone. It's not on his own, nor is he all alone. There are others. There are six others who join with him that continue this work as well. There is this cooperative nature we will work together to solve the problem. And in solving the problem and the issue, God uses this as a means of witness, not only in the church to strengthen the church, but to strengthen the mission of the church to the world. And you see, that's where we come to today. In all of its sadness of a week ago Saturday, 
in all of the tragedy of it, in all of the sin of it, in all of the depravity of it, in all of the questions of it, you know what's happened? God has used this as a means by which church after church after church after church after church in our community has banded together to support, to uphold another people of God, another congregation. Congregations that probably don't usually even talk to one another, don't even meet together. Offered love, offered services, offered comfort, offered gifts. And it's continuing to go on. It's an amazing thing when you look at the beginning of chapter 6, an issue that could have torn it apart. God, through the work of mercy, has built it up. I don't have any answers to what happened a week ago Saturday. Not really. I don't know the whys. I don't know the wherefores. I don't understand any of that. But I can already see God's gracious hand of mercy that from congregation to congregation through their deacons, through their deacons, have made such an amazing impact into this community. That which could have been judgmental, that which could have been used for greater divisiveness, that which could have been used for sheep stealing, has become what can we do to hold you together? What can we do to serve? This is the call of the church. Not only in our own community, but in our world. To show forth the love of Christ in a time when we could be ripped to shreds. Father, we thank you for Stephen and Philip Timon, the cantor, we thank you for Nicholas. This man who had an amazing journey of faith that you providentially were at work with throughout his life, bringing him through the work of your spirit to know Christ as his Lord and Savior, gifting him through the work of your spirit, having him serve in this office of deacon, that made such a difference. And Father, we look around us. We look around us. And we see the amazing way in which you're working in our community too. Father, may we, be, may we as individual members be reminded that when our deacons point out a way or a need 
by which we can serve, by which we can help, by which we can be of assistance. Father, we as members of the body of Christ are to take hold of those opportunities. That these are men. These are men of good reputation in our congregation. These are men full of the Spirit. These are men full of wisdom who are leading us as members to be the mercy of Christ in this world. Thank you. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not abandoning our community. Thank you for not abandoning Walker. But you, Father, in the ministry of the church, have set a great witness. And we would pray, we would pray that many, many might see that love and care and compassion. And that your spirit might use that to spur their own hearts to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, God's people say, Amen.